Hello there, friends. It is me, Chris, and this is the Underground Podcast numero three. I hope everyone has been well. Thank you for all the support so far with these. Uh, it really helps when putting them together uh, to hear that people are responding so well. Um, we do have a list of upcoming podcasts that are pretty exciting, but uh, please keep the suggestions coming through. Uh, today, I am very blessed to be talking to Eddie Rivas from Total Annihilation in LA. Uh, Eddie and I have been friends for quite a few years since meeting at a seminar, as is usually the case when meeting engineers from the same world as you. Uh, you discover that they've worked with a whole bunch of bands you adore. So Eddie actually now plays in Distorted Pony, which were a formative band for me as a younger musician. Um, most people f- will be familiar with Punishment Room, their 1992 full length. I would recommend delving deeper into their discography as they have been and still remain an incredibly compelling and subversive unit. I'm going to divert here from the last few podcasts and keep this intro shorter. So without any more faffing about, let's begin this one. Uh, Before we get started, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this is being recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, water and community. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. Here we go. You make the next couple versions a little more peppery off the top, a little more weight into it. If you want weight, I'm your fucking guy. (laughs) Because weight, bro. (laughs) (laughs) All right. How you doing, man? How's it going? I'm good. I'm sitting on my couch petting my, my cat. How's the studio going? Uh, well, we had a leak, so that was a bit hectic. I went by, uh, the other day when the rains were here, like last week and we had a leak. So then we patched it, uh, yesterday. It came down pretty hard today. So I went by, fortunately, it looks like the patch is holding. So physically (laughs) a little crazy. Um, there's a little bit of work going on. I was supposed to be at, um, I don't know if I told you this. I was supposed to go to, um, to Electrical Audio this weekend with a friend of mine, and we were going to work with a band there, but with the crazy weather in Chicago, the band's flights were canceled, and then our flights were canceled, so... Uh, so yeah, I've seen some people posting about that. What's going on in Chicago? Well, it's the it's the it's what they call the polar vortex, so I guess the winds from the north are coming across, and uh, it's pretty crazy. I mean, a friend of mine sent me a video that his cousin took, and he threw a cup of hot coffee into the air, and it like uh, became, uh, you know, like steam mist particles. It didn't stay liquefied. It was crazy. That's, um, that's kind of creepy. Yeah, some ki- some kid died. Like I think a, a college student didn't make it to his whatever dorm or housing, and he died. And there'll probably be some other fatalities. It's really, I mean, it's really, really, really cold. I mean, I've seen pictures and video, and it's yeah. It's not. Uh, it's not fun. Yeah, I mean, this part of Australia or anywhere here, we can't really quantify that. Yeah, yeah. Well, but then you guys are going through some crazy heat waves, right? Yeah, it is, but it's not yeah. really, like it's the, the the peak is like a forty degrees Celsius. It's not like uh, yeah. you know death can occur. Um, it's pretty uncomfortable. Yeah, but, I bet. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm in the studio most days, so it doesn't affect yeah. me that much. I mean, that's <laughs> what I. Yeah. Sorry, I figured I figured we'd go to Steve's and we'd be in the studio anyway, but we couldn't even get over there. Yeah, so they've grounded all planes. 
Yeah, I mean, they they picked up again today, but the band... So what ended up happening, the band ended up flying to L.A. and they're going to be working at my studio with my buddy as, a, as you know, the producer. Um, so, you know, it kind of worked out to help me a bit, but it sucked because we were all hoping to be at Electrical Audio this weekend. Have you worked there in a freelance position before? Uh, I've gone to, like, quote-unquote assist, but really I just hung out, you know, with a, my, my friend Manny, that's an uh, engineer-producer. Yep. And uh, I've gone with him uh, and, you know, hung out a bit. But um, but I've never taken a band there on my, like, you know, that I've wanted to record or has asked me there. I, I really I would really like to do that. It's a great studio. I mean, yeah. And they're very, very affordable. It's surprising how affordable that place is. For the equipment he has, for the rooms, I think the, the smaller studio, I think B, is $400 a day. And A is only $600 a day. You didn't take Distorted Pony there at any time, did you? No. Distorted Pony, They the first album they did with Steve was Punishment Room. And he flew to L.A. and did it at their house on a half-inch eight-track. And, um, and then a few of them flew back to Steve's house like a month later or so to mix it at his house when he still had his home studio. Then they went back, I think it was in 93, right? Yeah, I think it was 93. They went back and recorded at his studio on the 2-inch 24 track. Um, yeah, and then, so I have all those tapes, actually. I have all the, the reels, and uh, so I've, I've, I've been able to pull those. When I was learning Distorted Pony songs and the rest of the band had to review material, it was really cool to be able to pop those reels on to tape and then... Solo the actual parts that you need to play. Yeah. That's, a, that's yeah. the dream. And, yeah, and dump them into Pro Tools, and somebody would say, hey, I need a bass part for this. Can you send me the file? And, yeah, it was, I mean, it was really, really, uh, you know, uh, an asset to be able to do that. It made life so much easier. I just want to go back and ask, what time did you start Total Annihilation? Um, the building I'm in now opened 10 years ago. Well, a little over 10 years ago. Uh, before that, then it was sort of more at a hobby level and I was in a rehearsal space and we would record like, uh, on the weekends, like early on the weekends. And that started, I want to say around 2000, let me think here, around 2001 or two, we had a drummer that used to be, uh, uh our engineer and he quit. And then I took over and bought a four track cassette and uh, would kind of record our demos and stuff. And then little by little accumulated more gear. So some, you know, so I can, so around 2002, I started recording on my own. And then really seriously, when I decided to open a building, you know, a studio in a building and, and build a proper space, that was in 2008. It wasn't called Total Annihilation, was it? it? Well, it was. I mean, people, even if it was at the rehearsal space studio, people called it that what happened was my friends had a label at the time called total annihilation and people I guess assumed because it was my best friends that I was sort of a, a part of that and also because my band you know it was one of those things we, we'd pull our money together to put put out stuff so my band put out our album on that label and so I guess people assumed it was like the studios I mean the labels studio and then the name just kind of stuck and I think it's the complete like it's a, such an absurd, over-the-top name that I just decided to keep it, you know.
Uh, I didn't actually come up with the name. I think my friend Yusin or Anthony were the ones that came up with the, with the name of the label. And then it sort of was adopted by people as the name of the studio. But it's funny because, like, I worked with, with David J from, from uh, Bauhaus and Love and Rockets when it was still at the rehearsal space, actually. And so he, he I think he called me. Yeah, he called me and he said, so how do I credit the studio? And I said, well, uh, call it Total Annihilation. And he got real quiet. <laughs> it was pretty <laughs> <Yeah>. funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah, that was, so, yeah. And then, but he did credit it. So that, that's kind of cool. So your music scene where you were was pretty healthy, obviously, then if you, you know, you had a label that was fully functioning within the DIY scene. I mean, it's, it's sort of, uh, I'm assuming every city has, you know, multiple little scenes that that kind of help each other out. It's, it's it was never um, never profitable, you know. It, but it's just friends that you know when we'd want to put something out, would help each other put something out. I mean, you know, and initially they put out um, so if people can find them, and I still have a few of these. So like a band called Slee Stack put out some things on there. That's my friend Anthony and Yusin and um, Mo and some other people's band. And then we put out a band that got a little bigger, actually 400 Blows. They put out the first 400 Blows record or CD. And then uh, I think an Amps for Christ thing. Uh, I remember that band. That was the dude from Man is the Bastard. It, well, he was... Um, He's related to those guys, but I don't I don't know if he was in Man is the Bastard. Henry Barnes, I think, is his name. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Was he in Man is the Bastard? I do remember reading about that project, Amsterdam yeah. Cross, and I think yeah. I had some recordings when yeah. I was younger. Yeah, I mean, so Total Annihilation put out that stuff, and then, uh, then there was a, a long period of time where they didn't put out anything, and then we put out my band in 2003, and that was the last release up until, or no, 2004, uh, but that was the last thing we put out up until uh, la last year, 2018, when we reissued the dist the first Distorted Pony EP, a uh, seven inch. Uh, we got it remastered and we got different artwork and did it on like white vinyl and was like, oh my God, it was like a 25 year anniversary. Yeah, that thing came out in in 91 or two, something like it was like 25, 26 years ago. And so that was the first release in a really long time. But um, we decided to do it to sell on, on our tour. Like Distorted Pony went to Europe for two weeks. And uh, so we sold, uh, we did it as a split. I have to give credit to my friends in Spain. They're called Beauty Fool Records. So they got half the pressing, we got half the pressing. And we sold out all of ours except for a few overpress um, that I still have. But uh yeah, it was really cool to be able to, re you know, I was a big, I'm, I am a big fan of Distorted Pony. So to be able to like play with them and and re-release some of their stuff and just be involved is really cool. Did you have like, you know, great memories of seeing them growing up and, and being involved in what they were doing and now they've kind of come full circle? Yeah, I mean, I tell people it's, it's like, you know, when you read about Henry uh, Rollins getting to join Black Flag or Charles Mingus playing with Duke Ellington, like you, those things are just, you never expect anything like that to happen. Like to be able to play in one of my favorite bands ever was just, it's weird because I'm still a very big fan of the band, but I'm also like a member and I, I try to pull my weight in the band and, and all that sort of stuff when we do stuff. Um, 
but at the same time, you have some kind of outsider perspective as well, being a mega fan. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where um, I, I hope as a as a, a fan that well, two things. I hope that I'm I'm doing uh, you know justice to the the my parts, you know, that the music I'm playing and what I'm responsible for on that end, but also that fans uh, can get out of it what I used to get out of it when I'd go see them play, you know. It was a lot of work putting that tour together. I mean, some people got the T-shirts together. We got the 7 together. We also did some pins. We uh, The logistics, you know, uh, our bass player, Trisha, found airline tickets and all that sort of stuff. It was a lot of work. So so I really did try and um, contribute to to get that thing to to happen you know it's so cool that that came into fruition remember growing up growing up in brisbane there was always distorted pony stuff around you know like cassettes or really? like yeah a seven inch or like a, a t-shirt or a poster at different people's houses and yeah it's so awesome to to not have to to not forget about that band like so many bands that have been forgotten when i was younger that how was the reception in europe uh it was it was really great i think as um as a fan of theirs and a friend of theirs, I was very happy to see that they finally, from my experience, um, were playing to audiences that were completely there to see them. Because in LA, I think because it was, so they were around initially from like 86 to 93. And I think LA was, to this day, still still is dealing with the... Um, stigma of like Hollywood hair metal and all that crappy music. And so I think bands from LA never sort of got the same attention that bands like from Chicago and Austin and Seattle and New York uh, were, were getting, you know what I mean? Like all the noise rock from that era, they were always sort of, I think like this, um, it had a bit of a blanket thrown over it. Yeah. And just sort of like a, a you know, a black eye because of the, all the shitty music that came out of LA, you know, in my opinion. Um, and so, so like in LA distorted pony used to would open, for example, for like the bigger touring, but like maybe for the unsane or for neurosis, so people were aware of them, but I remember going to see Fugazi at like really big places, like you know, 2,500, 3,000 seat places. And I'd say, where are all these people when bands like Distorted Pony and Sandy Duncan's Eye and Slug and like some of the other noisier, you know, punk influenced rock bands, uh, like post-punk or whatever you want to call it, are playing? Because I would be like, you know, Fugazi can sell out three nights at the Palladium but good luck getting 50 people to show up at a, a venue for a local band. You know, it was kind of this weird, I don't think LA really uh, nurtured that scene nearly as much as, as it deserved to be nurtured. I think so I'm, to, yeah, to a, small, to a smaller extent that kind of happens, still happens in Brisbane, to be honest. Like you'll go yeah. see a universally popular subversive punk band with, and the venues, you know, 500 people there or something and then it's kind of like you know there's bands in brisbane that are kind of young kids kind of doing this like why isn't yeah. anyone going to watch yeah them play? i i i it would just sort of like i said like the jesus lizard would come to town and they'd sell out wherever they were were playing but you'd get a band like sandy duncan's eye uh playing some even a small place and okay maybe 30 people show up you know um so it's this weird uh i i don't know i never understood understood that you know and 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 i can't i can't even think of 
like if you think about it, like how many bands from LA got big during that whole kind of era of like the late, like the kind of like Nirvana era, right? I mean, most of the bands that got big were not from LA. There were really good bands here, but I just don't feel they got sort of the attention, especially the more noisy, fucked up, interesting ones. You know, there were a few that got on majors and blah, blah, you know, like Rage Against the Machine was from LA and Tool. But to me, they're not really noise rock bands, you know, so they were sort sort of operating at a kind of more digestible level from LA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Despite coming from, you know, kind of weirdo culture and whatnot. Yeah. So it's just, so anyway, so to go to Europe and have people be very receptive and and kind of uh, there to see us was really, really, I mean, uh, I, I remember we played in, I would think it was in Rennes, France, and this guy came up to me with tears in his eyes, like his eyes like welled up, put his hand on my shoulder and was like, I've waited 25 years to see your band. Oh, and it was just like, wow. And then the, the venue, you know, like when a band starts the riff to or the intro to a, a song and the crowd starts, like it was that kind of thing. Like we'd start playing a song and they'd know the song and start yelling. And it was like, I mean, I had, to, I had when we got done playing, I was soaking wet. I went outside and I had to call my best friend in L.A. and just be like, dude, I can't believe the show we just played because people were so gracious and appreciative and receptive that um, I've never even been in a band that's been received that way, you know, ever. Um, so I think everybody in the band was very, um, I mean, I don't know, happy, humble. I mean, all these things uh, about how we were received in Europe. I mean, they were already asking when we were going to come back and we would literally like get off the stage, you know, and they'd already be asking us that way at the merch table or at the outside or whatever, you know. Um, yeah, due to, for a number of different reasons, a band just sometimes doesn't find their audience for so long. Yeah, um, yeah. I thank God that, you know, records were made and obviously the internet, thank God for the yeah, internet. Yeah, totally, yeah. No, it's one of those things where, uh, especially in that town, I guess the story I heard was there's a DJ there that used to play Distorted Pony pretty regularly on his show, and so kind of kept that that music um, in people's radar for all these years. So that when we went to play there, people were really looking forward to it and very excited to see us, and and we felt it. I mean, it was it was like I I, I mean it was like if we were the Jesus Lizard or some or the Melvins or something. I mean, people were going nuts. So it was really cool, you know. That really illustrates the uh, importance of um, community radio. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think um, all, all the stuff that goes on, like that, blogs, podcasts, um, uh, I think all these things are very much uh, keeping um, music that otherwise is inaccessible, like the fact that they're sharing files and playing them on their shows and all that, I think is really cool because – um, otherwise I think a lot of that stuff would, would still, I mean, if you think about like, let's say that like the Jesus lizard, right? Like, I mean, I, all my friends know who they are, but you talk to the, most people, they have no clue who the Jesus lizard is, right? Even people that claim to be into like punk rock have no clue who that is or who big black is, or even the birth, right? I mean, it's kind of like hardcore is still very much seen as the, the, um, paradigm or whatever and if and and so those bands like everybody knows black flag even if they're not punk rock fans or the misfits but there's this whole era from like 
I don't know, like 87 to, I don't know, the, the mid 90s, where I think um, even though bands like Nirvana, Helmet, Soundgarden kind of popped up, overall that music, you know, maybe Sonic Youth in there, but overall the music scene sort of the weirder, noisier, you know, what I think is more interesting bands, they never, you know, got, got the uh, attention and, um, and, uh, I don't know, the uh, airplay or whatever that, that I, to, to kind of keep them in the, um, keep them sort of in the lineage of rock, you know, I mean, they'll throw in a smashing pumpkins or whatever, but that's probably as, 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 you know, that band got really huge. But in terms of the underground, like even bands playing Lollapalooza, like I said, like the Jesus lizard, most people don't know. I remember I played, uh, I lent a a friend, uh, Jesus lizard, uh, CD or whatever. And, you know, he said the closest thing he could relate them to was Iron Maiden because of the bass playing. And I was just like, what? You know, so he had no reference for any kind of noisier sort of stuff, you know? Yeah, did you feel like, I sort of felt because I, I originally got into like punk and hardcore and uh, to a lesser extent metal and, and grind and whatnot. And yeah, the, complex, yeah. the complexity of those kinds of music and the the attention deficit involved and, and then moving on to like and discovering yeah. bands like Jesus Lizard and Scratch Acid and whatnot. It, yeah. The realization for me was, how can they? How did he just play something so simple that is like a warm up exercise on guitar, and it like punched me in the face? Yeah, and it had yeah. such weight and gravity and energy behind it, but it's such simple. Yeah, kind of music. Uh, it's just so I mean, that's kind. Of, I've I've uh, tried to you know learn some of those, and I've transcribed a few of those, like uh, Jesus Lizard songs, and yeah, there's some things that are so simple, but they just fit so well, you know. Um, so are you going to do any more, is Distorted Pony going to you know, put out any more music in the future? Or? Well, I mean, we got off that tour with, with a lot of um, hope, I think. But it's very difficult because uh, David, the other guitar player and, and main singer, uh, lives in Austin. The rest of us are here in, in the Los Angeles area, but it's, it's really hard to, it's kind of hard, I think, to put it on some sort of schedule or to-do list because um, everybody has like lives way outside of the band that are, you know, I mean, some people are parents and, uh, you know, have career, well, everyone has some, you know, career and stuff. So I know we we plan on playing, I think in May with the band that we toured with and I should thank them. Uh, They're called Kani Shori from Italy. And uh, they were great tour mates. I mean, they just were very nice, loving, like you could not ask for a more fun, nice, like fun guys, but never got crazy, um, you know, and, and were very sweet to us and accommodating. And so they're coming to the States to tour and then they're going to do a record at my studio. And so, yeah, so we're planning on doing some shows with them at least an LA show. Um, they're a band that's playing, uh, and they've been around for a few years, but they, they weren't a band 20 years ago kind of thing. So they're a new, a newer band and they have, I think three or four records out, at least three that I know of. And, um, yeah, so, so the only thing that I'm, that's on the radar for distorted pony is, uh, as far as I know, um, and uh, now we, David did talk about uh, talk about writing new songs and stuff like that, but 
like I said, it's 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 tough to kind of get everybody together. Um, yeah. So do you li- do you listen to much music anymore? As when you're in front of speakers all day, do you kind of find it hard to connect with and find new bands and whatnot? Um, I listen to music all the time. Like first thing in the morning. Uh, well, see, I also substitute teach. So if I substitute teach, if it's a day like today, I didn't have to substitute teach. So, uh, and I didn't have studio work. So I, I wake up, I throw a record on. Usually it's like a, a, a jazz record. I listen to, like, I'm on a Booker Irvin kick right now. So I listen to his music a lot. Um, Coltrane, those kind of guys. And, um, but I pretty much listen to music uh, every day. I mean, I still listen to a lot of music. The newer stuff, I have to say, and I, I don't mean to sound like there's no good music out there, but there there hasn't been any bands in a while where, well, that's not true. That's not true because I really liked the Mets. I like the Mets stuff. I like a band called Landlines a lot. Uh, there's a band called uh, Destruction Unit. Uh, another band, Dream Decay. So there are some newer bands, or Destruction or, Unit. I've I've have one of those records actually. Whereabouts are they from? I think they're from Arizona. Yeah, yeah okay. I'm not sure what city, but I think so. Um, you know, the big business is putting out so, but no, on a, on a normal day, it's usually like you know my normal intake of music. Like today, I listened to uh, Quincy Jones' uh, album back when he was doing jazz on Impulse. Um, cause I always, did, did you watch that documentary? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, oh, it was brilliant. Hey. Yeah. I mean, um, I heard his mu- his jazz sort of ensemble music a few years back and I wasn't aware of that. I just knew he was like a, a producer for pop, like Michael Jackson and all that. So I never paid attention to that music. No, not at all. I yeah. thought, I thought he was yeah, the, just the recording engineer Yeah, and sort of, yeah. yeah, producer, I guess, manager. Yeah. So when... I'm getting a feedback now. There we go. So, is there community radio in LA that you're into? Well, I, I used to listen a bit to a station called KXLU, which in the back, you know, 80s, 90s used to play stuff. I really like. Now, um, I don't listen to them too much. They have an app, but the app didn't sound very good. But a lot of the, a lot, they they were kind of the station that like supported like the noise rock scene in LA. Beyond that, I listened to you know, podcasts and, uh, I try, I mean, I used to listen daily to the news, but with, with, with the asshole we have as president right now, you can only take so much. So I try and pick and choose a bit of time to do that, to kind of see what's going on as opposed to like constantly have it on in the car. Being flooded with it. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Before, uh, I could kind of listen to like a good hour of, of news and see what's going on. But now it's gosh, 10 minutes and you're exhausted, you know? Uh, There's a great podcast, but uh, Henry and Heidi podcast. Oh yeah, I've listened uh, to that. That's a great one. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. When he was talking about the end of silence and yeah. doing that with Taylor and Annie Wallace, that was a great. There's a couple of great like record making sort of podcasts that yeah. Uh, Hen- yeah. Henry's done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other one is the what's his name um, from uh, Star Trek, uh, the Captain Kirk. What's his name? Um, Patrick. Uh, no, 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 no. This is the old is one. The old, um, um, oh, I can't believe I'm zoning out. But anyways, he did. He did a, uh, an episode about. Oh, William Shatner. William Shatner. Yeah. William Shatner. I actually yeah. remember that. Yeah, yeah, and he was talking about going like yeah. uh, dredging for scallops with him. Something like. Well, and then like getting <laughs> getting Adrian Ballou to play guitar. Like, how crazy is that? You know. King Crimson. Yeah, those are. Great. Yeah, yeah, totally. Those are great. 
So how what's the kind of weekly schedule of the studio at the moment? Like, are you happy with not being full-time there anymore? Like, as you get older, do you kind of want to spend a bit more time away, give your ears a break and your mind? No, 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 not at all. Like, um, I'm not nearly as busy as I wish I was. Um, it's, it's very uh, up and down. I mean, some months I have a good bit of work. Other months, like this winter was really slow. Um, I'm starting to book up a little more for, uh, looks like more like March is starting to come around, but, um, no, I'm always wanting to spend more. I mean, I go there when I have like free time, I still go there and, um, just practice really. I mean, I'll pull up a song I I worked on and, um, I'll kind of try to mix it differently or, uh, you know, if I see something like or read about something, I'll try that technique uh, to learn from it and see what I can kind of get out of it. Um, so, no, I mean, I wish I was a lot. Bi- I wish I was just doing more of it, to be honest, um, because it's uh, it's I, I still feel like there's a lot to uh, I mean, so I have a, a podcast on a station called Radio Espacio dot uh, org. What I've managed to do with that is invite bands to do like peel sessions. So when I'm going to have a slow month, I'll reach out to bands I've heard of or friends recommend or I've seen. And I'll say, hey, you know, I have this podcast and I have a studio. Would you like to come in on a weekend? And then, um, uh, you know, that's sort of how. And what I like about that is there's, I mean, you know, you're always hustling for work and it's sort of tough to ask a band to come into your studio for quote unquote free without them being very suspicious of that, you know what I mean? So having the podcast and and just telling you, you know, they're your songs, you can do whatever you want with them, with the time, um, that sort of, I think, removes some of that suspicion. And it also, um, I don't feel like I'm trying to pull a fast one over them and, and be like, well, I want you to come in to my studio and record you for free and then you'll feel obligated to be there and rec- work with like I don't want I don't want that to be part of the the relationship experience. Yeah, yeah exactly like that. it's a weird disposition to kind of start it, on it is yeah it is and then so most of the, I mean and most bands have been really receptive and and out of that I have had bands that then come back and work with me but I've also had plenty of bands that have regular engineers they do their records with or whatever and but I still go to their shows and have remained friends with a lot of them and that sort of thing. But that's sort of my, you know, and then I can kind of, I feel a little more uh, at liberty to experiment a little with, with, with those types of sessions, like maybe just try a microphone or, or some technique that I haven't done before uh, or I'm still learning with, with those sessions because there's no money being exchanged and, or any of that, you know, um, so that are, are that's you actually doing it in your studio, or are you doing at a at a radio? At a no, radio? there's a local radio station or podcast station uh, in Boyle Heights, which is a, an area in Los Angeles uh, called uh, the name of the. It's out of a store called Espacio eighteen thirty nine, and in there there's a community radio station, and so I've had my show on there. Oh, I don't know how many years now, but quite a few. It's up to episode fifty seven, I want to say. Wow. Um, yeah, we went through a change, so there was a hiatus for a long time, but I'm finally back on track. Um, yeah, I changed names, and uh, the person that was in charge of the station is no longer in charge, and 
some other people. It's, it's much more now, in, uh, how can I put it, uh, delegated, like people have different responsibilities. And so it's much more communal now. Are you doing like a quote unquote peel session every show? Uh, not every show, but every few shows. I, I try to, but, it, you know, schedules and things like that. In fact, I just remembered I have to call somebody that I, I was trying to schedule. Um, uh, unfortunately, the archive isn't full right now. I don't have every episode available. People can find at least the, the Facebook page is facebook.com backslash Olosiento, O-L-O-S-I-E-N-T-O. Um, and then there's also a Instagram at Olosiento. And, uh, but the radio station is uh, Radio Espacio, E-S-P-A-C-I-O dot org, one word. Great. Yeah, I'll post some of those links um, when yeah. I put this sure. podcast up sure. as well for cool. people to yeah. check cool. out. Cool, yeah. Have you delved into, I guess, the more pop side of things or gone to any of the studios where, you know, more commercial radio music is happening and kind of witnessed how that element of the industry works? No, no, not really. My All, all of my training has been um, on my own, reading books, um, uh, eventually, you know, YouTube and all that, but, you know, attending Mix with the Masters, obviously. But most of it has been that way and then asking friends that are engineers about how to do things. But I've never been one of those guys that like has hung out at Sunset Sound or East West or United or, um, you know, Sound City. Like I never went through that route of, of learning how to record. And, and I'm not a, like I, I really don't know uh, pop music and more mainstream music that world i'm just not a, a part of any of that you know yeah so i bring it up just because quite a few people in australia from the engineering community here mm-hmm. have all you know gone over to la but would yeah. never cross paths with someone or a studio like yours which is weird to me because like it's cool like what you're doing is cool like it's you know it's, well, it's the classic commercial yeah. facility setup but uh everyone's kind of going over there to be on a laptop and edit vocals for people. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think it's a really tough situation because those studios tend to have their their house engineers and people that so it seems to me that um it's it's really difficult to come to a place, especially like LA, not know anyone, not have any connections to the music, any music community or scene or whatever you want to call it, and and try and get work. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I don't, it sounds very, like, it's just very difficult. And I've had, uh, you know, friends do that, that I've met over the years where, you know, they've, they know how to engineer, but they don't have, no one knows who they are. And I think the fact that I've grown up here and have been playing in bands since I was, you know, 15, I'm 45 now. And so all through that time, I've made friends and connections with with people in the music scene and, and have a, I think a good reputation as being a reliable, hardworking, honest person. And, um, I think those are the things that are sort of beyond, beyond the studio, right? The attributes that people want for someone working on their, on their music. And so I've been able to do it at some level, but yeah, I mean, we get people from all over, I mean, but we get people, from all over the world coming here to try to be actors and musicians and chefs and everything. You know what I mean? I guess so, so yeah. There's kind yeah. of like a halo around it 
uh, that I'm not sure exists. Um, definitely from the industry that I'm talking about. I mean, some freelance engineers in here will often say like, I'll be like, why does that vocal sound like it's phasing? Because you've got like three, they're like got a doubling effect. And it's like, oh, this is, this is how the LA people do it. Like that's a kind of a comment that gets thrown around the studio a lot. Like this is how the LA boys do it. I'm not <laughs> entirely sure what that means. <laughs> But, uh, I, I have no clue what that means, to be honest with you. I just, yeah, I know, uh, I know a couple of bigger name producers, but not n like um, not people like uh, Chris Lord Algae or um, you know Quincy Jones or like I don't know those people. I know the more day to day wor working on rec, you know, like those kind of folks, not the mega superstar types, you know. Um, but I really don't know. And from talking to them, they still have a very grounded view of how to make records. Like, um, uh, they still are very much like a good microphone, a good preamp and a good performance. You know what I mean? Like I, I'll ask them questions and they still are very much like there's, uh, there's not a huge mystery to unravel. You know what I mean? No, of course not. Um, and I think a lot, see, the, the other thing though is like, I, I'm trying to, just in terms of thinking of the question you asked, I think one of the things that people that go into a studio and are unfamiliar with working in a studio or, uh, you know, are just getting in there, there's a certain level of like, they want to see some sort of magic happening, right? Like a trick. Or a you know, or a gimmick taking place that makes them think you're doing a good job, you know, and like, oh, I'm going to use this really expensive microphone and I'm going to run it through this and that, you know, like, as opposed to just using the microphone because it's a good microphone, you know what I mean? Um, and so I think same thing with like, I've had some engineers come to my studio and like, we'll pull up a session and they'll see that I'm not using any plugins and they're like, why aren't you using plugins? And it's like. I recorded it well. I don't need a, to use uh, an EQ plugin and a compressor plugin and some other type of, you know what I mean? And so I think that there's this expectation, uh, especially like because of digital uh, workstations where you can have 18 compressors, you know, even or 18 1176s across the whole, uh, you know, uh, all, all the tracks. When in reality, what studio is going to have 18 1176s? You know what I mean? No, yeah, uh, it's kind of absurd. So, You're kind of not really learning how to track properly either if you're having to do gain reduction on most of your shit. Well, and just just the sense of like, um, like I said, I think that is something that they think represents while well, I'm working. Uh, you know, it's like, well, look at all these plugins I'm using and look at this fancy plugin. I just nice shiny plugin. I, you know what I mean? And so I think that there's this, um, maybe it's a pressure and uh, for some engineer engineers to have to use all these extra tools that you don't really need to use. Um, and, and I have had, you know, I have had bands in the studio where like, let's say there's, you know, there's usually one person in the band that has doubt, at least dabbled with recording and they'll come over and they'll see what I'm doing. And I, I'm always open to questions and things like that. And, and they'll say, they'll point out like, you're only using like a, 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 a comp, uh, like a plug-in compressor on the Tom or whatever. I'm like, yeah. And they're, 
they're almost suspicious or surprised or, (laughs) you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't need it on anything. I would do. And and I'll say, do you hear something that needs to be compressed? Like, I'm like, maybe I missed something. And I have yet to have somebody tell me that, oh, you know, yeah, you should put a compressor on X, Y, Z or whatever, you know? But I think, yeah, I think there's this, um, I think people are impressed with all those windows opened on the screen and, you know, you know what I mean? It seems like there's more labor occurring um, rather than than just drop down menus of decisions that don't need to be made really. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, uh, you know, if you track it well, you'll, it'll be just that much easier to mix it, you know? Yeah. I was talking to someone that did the, I think it might've been Manny Marroquin's, uh, mixed with the master's seminar. And they uh-huh. were saying that they had a whole bunch of. Uh, they went there to do a mix session with him, and their version had a whole bunch of plugins, even Manny's own plugins. And he was like, "That doesn't. That plugin is not very good. It's just for you know home people messing around. Like you know, don't use that. Yeah. And you just <laughs> just have your eight your eight channel Mackie mixer and a pair of NS10s yeah. and just massage it, and because it's recorded well, so like stop doing stuff yeah. to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the same thing happened I think when we were with Steve and we saw that mix with the masters right and we saw how little he used compression how he didn't use compression to color the sound he used compression as a tool to control the level right um I didn't see him use a ton of EQ um he just knew which mics would sound uh good on on a specific source and so I think that um there's that level, or, or how can I put it? There's, I think people have to get over the in, maybe insecurity or the perception that you have to uh, use those things when you know, I think if you record it well, you don't. Now, I, I got to say, I have friends that, that use either plugins or outboard compression a lot. Like it's amazing to me how much they use it to sculpt and color the sound. Do you think uh, those people are not live tracking though? Because when you don't live track, you sort of paint yourself into different corners, and then you have to navigate them afterwards with EQ and stuff. When you just set up a band live, you're like, "Oh, this this is not working, so we need uh, to change this microphone, or maybe consider the amp settings." You know. Well, from 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 what I can tell, they do it. Uh, it's part of kind of their, their MO. I mean, they just, they always have like, um, you know, some sort of, uh, distorted, crushed room mic, you know, um, things like that, you know? Um, and, 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 and all credit to them, they make their stuff sounds great to me. I mean, they really know how to use that stuff. I just, I've tried doing those things and it just, I, I don't know. That sound isn't one. Sound, I've tried. I've know? tried so many times yeah. to do the whole yeah. <laughs> distorted or yeah. smashed room mic thing yep. or buttons in yep. thing. I just can't. I can't see how it fits into creating the sense memory of the band. Like it doesn't. I don't know. I just. I can't get it to well, work. Well, but see, that's the thing because um, I think like some of those they're trying like it's and then, you know obviously it seems like more heavier bands tend to lean towards using those techniques, right? Those heavily compressed and distorted color kind of techniques, because I think that signals to us that's a heavy band because the sound sounds that aggressive, right? 
when I've done that, it hasn't worked for me. When they've done that, I gotta give they they seem to pull it off. It works for them. Um, yeah, you know, coming at it on a, on a different angle or something. Yeah, I mean, you know, and and like I said, I have quite a few friends that that do that and do a lot of processing. Now, the 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 thing that I've noticed is that um, after a while, some like the record they did with X Band sounds very similar to the record they did with you know, Z band, right? It's like, oh, you use those same exact settings. and Exactly. Uh, you know? And it kind of it takes a bit of the essence away. Like, you know, when you have a drummer that hits their hi-hat or snare drum or something weird, like a kind of a lazy sort of roll or something. And if you kind of gate it, and not to say that the people you're talking about do this directly, but if someone were to gate it uh, a specific way and then use the kind of sample they like or the kind of transit designer that they like to use on every snare drum, that's kind of the essence of that drummer is taken away and what you think is maybe a quote-unquote mistake then you listen back to the record and you're like that doesn't really sound like my friend when you listen to your band your friend's band is like they kind of lost what i actually thought made them kind of sound original yeah yeah i mean i can i can see where that's that can happen i mean i think ultimately though in all credit to the bands and my, my friends and and other people I think bands go into the studio aware that, well, we're going to get that sound from that engineer. And uh, so, so I'm not trying to, um, I'm not trying to say that what they're doing is not good or, uh, or, or whatever. I'm just saying I have noticed that I have, you know, seen sessions where they can do a lot of processing and the bands, you know, is really into it. You know, um, I just, I don't know. To me, things start to get muddy, and and um, and the dynamics start to get lost and stuff like that. So I, I've kind of, you know, it was funny. I, I I had some money for a minute, and I got like a, a Purple Audio eleven seventy MC seventy seven compressor. I got a distressor. I got a uh, this PV Dual uh, optical tube compressor. That's really great. And then it was almost like I learned how to record and I find myself using those things very little. I mean, I have a lot of other compressors also, but I kind of spent all this money and then found myself like, wow, I don't really use that as much as I thought I would. You know what I mean? Like if Frank Sinatra came in, you'd put the purple on him. But yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. for most applications, you don't really, there's not a problem solver. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I, I thought, oh, I'm going to get these and use them all the time and then it's i mean i've had some sessions where maybe during tracking you use them for limiting or whatever you know but then i you know and i guess the thing is right if you do it if you if you get the sound you want at the tracking stage then when it comes to mix you're not reaching for the compressor um as much as 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 you would if if you 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 didn't do it well the first time around you know a lot of the heavy stuff that you and I would record is so non-dynamic anyway. Like, it, how like, I don't really understand, you know, compressing heavily distorted guitars. Yeah, I don't think I've ever. Uh, you know, the only time I have actually, that's not true. So uh, Billy Anderson was working in the studio next door, and uh, so my building has two studios in it. My friend Manny Nieto used to be in one. And then I had the other studio. And so Billy Anderson was using his studio. So he came over and I had the first time meeting him. And he saw that Art Pro VLA and he was like, you know what? 
if you're having trouble with your guitars, run your really distorted guitars through that. And sure enough, it does bring these harmonics in there that sometimes sort of you could – you didn't have to put it louder. But if you ran it through that, it did kind of let it sit better. Was that, so was there that are, kind of gain reduction, just kind of using the – Just, down. just, yeah, just letting it touch the, the, the – you know, to color it a little bit, you know. Um, but beyond that, I really don't – but it really depends on on the playing, you know. It does depend. Some players are aware of that too, and so they they control their dynamics pretty well. The greatest yeah. thing ever is when you get a drummer that wants their drums sent to their headphones in a certain way, so they'll control their dynamics as they're hearing them come back to them. That's when that happens. That's just a dream. Yeah, I mean, but that I mean, that's you know, you can take a violinist and the same thing, right? I mean, if they can hear themselves well, they can play very quietly and uh control their dynamics beautifully i mean that's it's you know but that's any good musician right they know how to um especially once they get comfortable a good mix on the headphones in the studio um and a lot of them do that thing where they'll you know have only one ear on because they want to hear the actual instrument and then the rest of the band in their other ear um but yeah i mean that's always you know a good musician is going to do a good job you know you have an elite there, don't you? Yeah, uh, elite two. Mm-hmm. Um, have you found that to be a pretty reliable console? Yeah, it is. Um, the, the so I got that in two thousand twelve. It had been at a, some studio in New York. It had some mods done to it that I got removed because it made the the routing a little different, and um, it had really shitty game pots on there. It had the wrong faders on it, like the wrong uh, taper. So I kind of had to undo a lot of stuff to get it back to stock. And it's, it, you know, I mean, it has its every so often, you know, you got to replace an IC or or a pot. But overall, I've never had the power supply blow. Um, uh, yeah, but I mean, it is like, what, 20-something years old now. So there's, you know, every so often we'll get in there and... and we changed, like I said, we changed all the faders. We've changed a lot of the pan pots or replaced them because, you know, they've gone worn out. Um, but overall, yeah. Are you finding that, um, because they're, they're electronically coupled, are you finding you're patching in external preamps for like, you know, bass drum or bass guitar, like electric bass and stuff? Or No. Um, in, in fact, I tend to use the, the Elite Pre's on, on bass a lot because I like the sound of, of the preamps, um, on bass. Uh, I mean, I have tracked full sessions just using that console. Um, every, it, it kind of depends on how much time we have. And, and also, you know, a ba- let's say a band's done a, a few things in a studio. They know like setup is going to take a minute, you know, it's going to take some time when it's a band that's never been in the studio and they're surprised that a half hour has gone by and the drums aren't set up yet, you know, it's like, uh, you know, you kind of feel them out. You know, sometimes you can talk to them. You know, a lot of times what happens is I'll say, okay, you know, we're going to say, and then they come upstairs, they hear things, and they understand why things, you know, we were taking the time to get things to sound good at the beginning. Um, but um, but I have done full sessions with just that console and not reached for any outboard. I don't have a lot of outboard pre's. I have a SciTech. I have four channels of API and one channel of Neve, 
And that's How similar it. are the MPX for the SciTech pre's in comparison to the Elite they're, pre's? They're uh, more open. They're they seem I guess you call it faster, but they are more they're they're more open. Not that the not that the um, they're both very clean, but they're and the and where I really learned this was in uh, tracking keyboards because we did it through the Elite. And then we took the same signal and put it through the SciTech, and you could just hear more detail in the keyboard sound with the SciTech. Really? Uh, yeah, that's where I really was like, whoa, like, wow. Um, the problem is those SciTechs don't have pads, and you can't really mod one in there. Yeah, I, ha I, I do use sometimes external pads, like the little barrels, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, but if it's something where, I mean, where that's an issue, then I just don't use the SciTech, you know? You just move on you know are you uh, trying to do recalls on consoles or do you just kind of do a mix and that's it well um what i've what i've kind of done is i'll finish us let's say i'll mix a song and i'll if if the when everything's wrapped up i do tend to take just with my phone a picture of the console I'm pretty good about remembering my patching, like, oh, yeah, I had this running through that, that running through this or whatever. But I'll take just one picture of, of like, the final fader uh, and the EQ, like, where I can just see everything. And if I do need to remix something, then I just look at that picture. You know, I tend to, on my board, I, I put the, on the tape that goes across the, the legend on the board, I'll have the name of the band. So I know what band it's referring to. But... I don't, uh, beyond that, I've kind of, I used to before be more meticulous, but I don't know. I kind of know what things I do. Are you, so I, if you know, you're recalling the console anyway, you're kind of changing the mix on some level, aren't you? Because it's going to change. Yeah, it's, it's not it's, going to be. Yeah. I've never found it to be better either when I've recalled a console. It's always been worse, which is fine because you have time to do it again. But it's, I think because faders are parabolic, they don't, it's not uh, minus 5 dB to plus 10. It's infinite you know it, it it curves you know it's not yeah yeah there's a there's a slope to it yeah so yeah i mean if you if, if you have it a millimeter off it really is changing your drum sound to some extent depending on what it is yeah but what i found is when you start when when a band starts saying we need this a little louder that a little louder um you're almost starting from scratch again because you know, if you put the keyboard up, then the guitar is kind of lost or the whatever, you know. So what I've, what I've, I mean, I'll, I'll reference maybe the first mix, like let, let's say the, the first mix, and then try and see what I can do to accommodate whatever changes the band wants. But there has been times where I'm just like, you know what, I'm just going to start over. And now that I know they need that to be a more uh, integral part of the mix, I'm going to now mix with that awareness and and keep that in mind and then that tends to work i have to say um i think it's healthy to start over sometimes yeah. especially like it's just faders you know what i mean unless you don't have that much hardware plugged in it's kind of it's just faders so you shouldn't yeah i mean like i said it's just it's it's tough to do it when um especially if the band wasn't there during mixing if if you're doing it sort of you know um you're sending them a mix and they're sending you notes, which I hate. I hate working that way, but I'll do it. Um, yeah, because uh, I, like I've worked with a band where the drummer's telling me one thing, 
the bass player's telling me another thing and the singer's telling me another thing and they're all contradicting each other. And it's just, and, and, and they're all emailing me separately. They're not having a conversation together and then sending me notes. It's like, and it's just like, Oh my God, you know? And, and I have had to like call the perceived leader of the band. If it isn't the, you know, overt leader of the band and say, Hey, I need some direction here. Like either someone has to come in or I have to be, or you have to tell me who should I listen to because it's, it'll drive you nuts, you know? And it's, uh, Sometimes I'll, sometimes I'll get a band to on just say if we have one day of mixing, um, you know, come in at one just because, uh-huh. yeah, you want to pack up some stuff from the session and, and balance the drums and stuff without oh, know, yeah, yeah, having a conversation yeah. behind you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to kind of, and then they get bored because you've been, you know, um, dealing with, with some little thing that you want to, you know, fix or deal with or trying to get fit. Yeah. So, and I have had bands like, just tell me, just tell us when the mix is done and then we'll all come in and then we'll go from there. You know, especially if, um, it's a band I've worked with before or a band that knows my taste, I guess, you know, where, you know, where they know like, oh yeah, Eddie knows what we're doing. So I, you know, they know I'm not going to have like, you know, the hi hat <laughs> louder than, you know, the vocals or whatever, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, so and I don't mind that, but I do I do prefer if there's a at least at the end of the process, right, at the initial mix, there's somebody there and they can go, "Oh, yeah, that's not the right reverb. We want more of uh, this kind or it's too long of a or too deep of a reverb. We want a a little faster, you know, uh sound or whatever." And then that way, you know, they they leave with the mix that you hope they're happy with as opposed to you send them the mix and just have to say your prayers and hope that they agree to it you know do you um how much how many sessions are you doing without a computer um it used to be a lot i I used to have probably 60 percent of the the stuff i used to do was fully analog and now it's a lot less it's probably you know 30 percent you know i do try and at least get the master mixes like the two track stereo master on tape archived or just for the sound uh more for yeah the archival quality like i've dealt with that like this distorted pony seven inch i was telling you about earlier that thing was recorded in 1991 and we have the master tapes and i was able to you know put it on my quarter inch two track and transfer them to digital and send them to the mastering guy and to the plant and all that and i didn't have to worry about software i didn't have to worry about you know, any of that stuff because I have the quarter inch two track or whatever, you know? Um, so a lot of it is that I know, you know, I remember, he, you know, like, we, we, you know, even before mix with the masters, right. Hearing Steve talk about that and going, well, he has a point, but when you actually really have to deal with it, it's very much, uh, a blessing in reality. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, boom, I have it right here. You know, I didn't have to see the other thing about, I think that people are sort of, um, so a reel of tape, people will see that reel of tape and then it'll say whatever, like your bands, it'll say idols. Right. And then, and everyone who loves you knows, do not throw this away. Right. So someday, you know, uh, but a hard drive or a thumb drive or a stack of DVDs that are in a spindle, you know, who's going to take the time to load those up and go, is any of this important? 
Yeah, they're just going to assume you know it's trash. Yeah, you know, and so that's another thing because people will be like, well, I have it backed up on multiple hard drives. Well, yeah, but, you know, let's say you get hit by a bus, who's going to know which hard drive has what, unless you take meticulous notes, and most people do not. And so there's that whole other aspect to it that it's not just the software stuff, it's the sort of like, um, um, how are people going to know what's even on there or that something as valuable as your music is on this hard drive or in the cloud? How are they going to get the password to get it? You know what I mean? So I think it brings up a whole nother aspect to that archival quality of it. A lot of people are kind of weird about keeping tapes. Um, I guess that were born of the generation that I was and grew up in the nineties and two thousands. But, um, I feel weird about my old hard drives that have years of Brisbane bands that don't exist anymore that were important and formative on some level to a bunch of people. And they're in a drawer, like kind of collecting dust and obviously got them backed up on computers and a cloud as well. But yeah, it's not, I wouldn't say a hard drive is like a, a safe place for something. Yeah. Yeah. And then for, I mean, when talking uh, about like 20 years from now, it's yeah. sa- it's safe now, but yeah. Yeah. So, so I think, and then the other thing I think is, um, I think there's something about, it's kind of like with analog, uh, or with vinyl, sorry. Like a friend was talking to me, he's thinking of getting a turntable. I said, you know, people can go back and forth about which sounds better, but there's just something really cool about the little ritual that takes place when I pull out the record from the shelf and then, you know, pull it out of the sleeve and put it on the turntable and put the tone arm, you know, pick up the tone arm and put it on, you know, and I think there is some sort of, um, it's like a micro theater. Yeah. But it's that little ritual you get of just that interaction, that little moment of interaction with, with the, this thing, you know, that then brings you music. But, um, I also think the same thing, there's like certain psychological aspects of recording to tape that, um, come into play. Like most bands come in tighter they don't do as many takes. They don't keep as many takes. If they do many takes, they'll say, no, scrap it. Let's do it. Again. You know, and usually I try and be the, the type of person that like just one take of each song on the reel because it's so expensive, first of all. But also, um, uh, if possible, if it looks like we can just have one take, then you don't have to listen to multiple takes and spend more time editing and all that. But at least there's not eight takes like in, in, you know, if you're working on digital or whatever, you know? Um, so, and I had this happen. I had this happen with, um, I, I have a friend Dorian Wood who I've done some stuff with and, um, we were working on a song. He did a Tom Waits cover and, uh, I think it was just solo piano, him and vo- him, him on piano and vocal. And we were tracking on the computer, you know, on pro tools or whatever. And it kept crashing for some reason. So I said, you know what, forget this. I'm going to get a reel of tape and we're going to track it to tape. And he nailed it right away. And it was like, you know what, I, and normally I've worked with him before. He'll do eight or nine takes of a song, you know, but something that immediacy, that psychological aspect that what's going on tape and I'm not going to have eight or nine takes to do, uh, I think really does help a band, uh, make decisions, come in, you know, be prepared. Uh, not, uh, not, and then also not sort of, um, I don't want to say waste time, but use up time with, let's say, overdubs that you know 
probably aren't going to even make it to the mix because you have tracks. You, you don't have to worry about running out of tracks. So there's all those things that I think make the session move more smoothly and make the decision making more immediate and, and, and permanent. And so the, I, I think all those things also come into play when it's an analog session, you know, on, on tape. Are you archiving a lot of the multi-tracks or mainly the stereo masters? Uh, it depends on the band. If the band has the budget, then we will, you know, track on tape. And then I've done a lot of stuff. We track on tape, then dump it into the computer for mixing, um, especially if, you know, automation and all that sort of stuff. And then, and then dump it onto, you know, and then it'll, we'll mix straight to the, um, to the two track. Um, I have had bands that want the quote unquote sound of tape. And so we'll track to tape, like I'll rent them a reel of tape. So we'll track to tape and then I'll dump it into Pro Tools and we'll go from there. Um, What two track are you running? uh, My Studer's uh, on the Blitz right now. So I'm using an Otari MTR 12 2C, I think. Uh, Yeah, my Studer. It's funny, all the parts, there's a guy in Australia that I ordered parts from for my Studer. and uh, it's almost almost back together. So hopefully within the next week or so, the studer will be up and running. Yeah. Well, I just want to wrap this thing up. I think I just about uh, got to go help my brother move house in about uh, yeah, half okay. an hour. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much for doing this, but I really appreciate it. Oh no, it's great talking to you, Chris. I miss all you guys. I miss the Australian guys a lot, man. That was a really fun group of people, and I'm hoping still to somehow get over there and visit all of you. Do you still talk to everyone else? Uh, I did talk to Mike recently about his band. He's in a band, what is it called, High Tension. Yep. I asked him just if I could find his stuff out here and they don't have a label in America because I like that band. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, I have beyond that, not I, when I saw Shellac, I told Steve that, you know, we, a few of us do stay in, in touch with each other and you know, support and, and help each other out with information or just being supportive and stuff. And, you know, he, he seemed, you know, he kind of gave that nod like cool, you know. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I like I said, I really enjoyed that time and, and miss that group of people. I think yeah. about it often. Yeah, same here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was like it was like a summer camp for recording engineers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it really kind of put a lot of people, like a lot of us that were like-minded and not just musically were into the same stuff, but had a similar disposition towards recording and had similar taste and aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, on a yeah. Te- on a technical level, and I didn't have anyone like that around Brisbane, and I didn't uh, know there were many around Australia, and and to meet yeah Australians over there, and obviously you guys as well that all kind of shared the same way of thinking. That was the most important yeah. thing. It was equally important as to the actual the lessons. Yeah, yeah, no, I, and I think the the for me what I got out of it most was sort of that um, like a, a sense of respect and validation from Steve that uh, seemed, you know, where when like he was even asking me like what mics I used and what it was like, dude, what you're asking me what like, you know, so that was that was really cool that I think he really showed a sense of like. Uh, addressed as, as as peers, as equals, yeah. Rather than yeah. I'm I'm here to espouse you know. wisdom. Yeah, yeah, totally. Even though obviously you know there's that to be gleaned too and learned from, but but no, that was really cool. And and uh, yeah, and then just everybody being very 
supportive of one another. Because that you, I, I could imagine that that I mean, you're in a room with a bunch of recording engineers, and it can turn into I think a very like competitive sort of ego fuck. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I've felt that before at at um, similar seminars, like oh, smaller versions in Brisbane and whatnot. There's a an, a level of everyone has their hubris and whatnot, and but um, uh, but there yeah. it was it was so like it was just chill. Yeah, no, everybody was really great. And like I said, I mean, the fact that we, you know, what was that? Almost five years ago, right? When was that? Two thousand fourteen, right? Two thousand fourteen. Yeah. yeah so, absolutely. and I mean, we still stay in touch. Somebody's got a question on Facebook. Whoever can chime in does. I mean, I think it's really cool that you know we're we're you know as as much as we can be there for each other. You know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Chris, it's good talking to you, man. Thank you for uh, taking the time. All right, cool, man. Have a good one. You too, Chris. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Well, there you go. Eddie Rivas being an acerbic genius. Thank you for tuning in and feel free to contact us with any questions. Uh, If you're wanting to get a dialogue going, please do. Uh, Everyone's doing it, so don't feel weird about reaching out. Okay, then take care, everybody.